0: Welcome to The Otherwise Podcast, Season 3. I'm your host, Casey Tigrett. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. If you listen to the show often, you'll notice that it's been a minute since our last episode, and part of that is because I'm committed to only releasing the best conversations that I can find. And so, sometimes that means that because of schedules, uh, sometimes that means because of conflicts. Uh, sometimes that means because this isn't the only thing I do. <laughs> uh, I don't have an episode every week. And so I appreciate your uh, patience, but I know a lot of people don't listen every week. Um, so if you are waiting on episodes every week, thank you for being patient. And I, I hope that the content that you are getting when it does come is the best of what I can bring you. And so I just wanted to tell you that. And I also wanted to tell you next week's episode is going to be a bit different Uh, it's going to just be me. And I have a couple thoughts I want to offer you, actually two mantras that I want to give you for this time period. But before we get into the conversation today, I wanted to tell you uh, about a time in 2006 when I went to Honduras. Actually, it was 2007 now that I think about it. Yes, 2007. And I remember landing at the airport and going through customs with a church group that we were going on a trip to see a friend of mine who worked at an orphanage where they helped kids who had HIV and AIDS. And I remember walking out of customs and into the main area of the airport and hearing the sound of elevated voices, which wasn't all that surprising, but every elevated voice was speaking a language that I didn't know. And that's one of the things that if you've never been to another country or if you've never been to another culture, they talk about culture shock. I don't know that I experienced culture shock, but what I did experience was a jolting to the fact that there are languages and peoples throughout the world that I have no idea about. I say that to start this episode because my conversation today with Robert Chao Romero was one of those eye-opening moments. In his book, Brown Church... Robert brings to light the history of Latino and Latina theology. And he brings this whole rich, just tapestry of theology and faith that most of us have no idea about because we're just so white in our theology. And so it's a joy for me to bring you this conversation it's a joy for me to bring you what he talks about as the glory and honor of other cultures and of the nations, and how we as Euro-American Christians might be transformed by hearing these other voices. And so it's now that I bring you to our conversation today with Robert Chow, the American. Robert, I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're joining me today. These are interesting times. For for everybody, but you're facing some really interesting times right now. Talk talk a little bit about where you literally physically are at this moment. So we are
1: escaping the the bobcat fires, <laughs> and so we are in the desert while my kids are doing their schooling, and I'm trying to like conduct podcasts like. In the, in the bedroom on top of a, near a closet and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and we're just waiting for the frogs to start coming down from the sky and then the picture
0: will be complete. <laughs> we are at that biblical plagues kind of point, are we? <laughs> uh, it, it feels like that 2020, I, my wife and I joke all the time, it's like the infomercial that says, but wait, there's more, like what else is going to happen this year? Uh, and, and woven into that is... The idea of you know how we how we deal with the stuff that gets thrown at us, which is you know at the heart a lot of what we talk about on the podcast. We we talk a lot about wisdom, and these practical circumstances beg for it. So I wonder for you uh, as we get started here. If, if you were going to define the word wisdom, if you were going to start that whole process, where, where's a beginning point for you in defining what wisdom really is?
1: So I think, you know, of course, the obvious place is sort of, you know, Proverbs and other p- scripture that talks about, you know, the, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But I, th- I think that also, that, that being said, <laughs> you know, I think that God expresses his wisdom through the church and through the history of the church and God expresses his wisdom, his glory and honor, if you will, uniquely through different ethnic communities that have followed Jesus over the centuries. And I think that that's why we need the whole body of Christ to be able to understand God more. Because if we leave out one part of the body of Christ, or just hear from one part of the body of Christ, or, or don't look back to our 2,000-year, our, our, you know, 4,000-year history of God's people, then, then I think we have a short-sighted view, in my opinion.
0: And it does seem like, as I'm listening, it does seem like there's a point where church history stops and then we fast forward to the present moment. So depending on what tradition someone's from, they may stop, especially people who are white, who are European in heritage. Um, There's a point in history where it feels like we stop, whether that's the Reformation or and then there is a gap. And then we go, and now today, <laughs> when there's so much, and this is the gift that you bring in your book, Brown Church, is there's so much that has happened not in Europe and not to white people, and actually in a way that should critique some of that. That I, That's definitely what I want to talk about, because I think that's fascinating. I, I'm curious, though, for you, where did your journey with theology begin? How, how did you get on the path to becoming who you are today? Sure. It, I mean, it really I,
1: uh, took off when my life was transformed in law school. So I went to law school. I knew Jesus, but I was a baby Christian for many, many years. And I thought, okay, yeah, I want to go to law school. I'm, I believe in Jesus on Sunday, but I want to make a lot of money. I want to be rich and famous. And then in the end of law school, Rather, I'm sorry, the end of my first year in law school, in the the heat of all the finals and stuff, I went through a very difficult relationship breakup. Um, Mm -hmm. In hindsight, I'm thankful because that led me to my wife, Erica. But at the time, it was very difficult. (laughs) And then that's where Jesus got a hold of my life radically, right? And once Jesus got a hold of my life, then everything got turned upside down and transformed. And then that led me to the vocational question of, okay, God, what do you want to do with my life? and as a mixed race person my dad is from Mexico and my mom is from China I grew up here in the States in LA race had always been the first thing on my mind like I mean from the time I can remember being six years old thinking about race and so once Jesus got a hold of my life then my question became okay Lord what do you have to say about race (laughs) what is race what is culture what is ethnicity from your word and so that was like I probably started asking that question in mid '90s, maybe like 1996, and it's just been a journey of these last uh, quarter of a century of trying to just dig into God's Word and and so on and so forth. I th-
0: I think there are there are so few white folks who have that sense of connecting their race to theology because it seems as if. When someone like me says theology, someone else like you would need to say, you know, adjective theology. So you add an adjective to the beginning to describe which kind. Uh, And that's sort of that privileged spot of being able to say, well, I just talk about theology. You talk about Latina, Latino theology, or this person talks about Asian theology. When was your first aha moment? When did you first come into contact with that? that discrepancy between, oh, not everybody's means the same thing when they say theology. Sure. Um, I remember being a grad student, it was towards my end of my,
1: my doctoral studies in history, it's probably around the early 2000s. And I was reading Revelation chapter 21. Mm-hmm. You can picture the moment very clearly. These steel tables outside of Campbell Hall at UCLA, for those of, of your listeners who might know UCLA, reading Revelation 21, and in that, you know, John is describing you know, the New Jerusalem. And in that passage, John says hey, there's a couple of verses that always get overlooked. I, in fact, I, I don't even know if uh, a, if an evangelical or a Protestant um, kind of commentary on book of Revelation ever even talks about these two passages. But in, Re- in Revelation 21, 26, and 27, John says... That the glory and honor of the nations, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into the new Jerusalem. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought in. But then verse 27 says, but nothing that causes sin. And I'm paraphrasing, right? The word glory can be translated uh, treasure and wealth. So I remember in that moment of like getting hit by lightning, you know, (laughs) outside of, of, of Campbell Hall thinking, oh my gosh. The different ethnic groups of the world have glory and honor, have different cultural treasure. But as verse 27 states, they all have distinct sin. Hmm. And so my understanding is that like, you know, as children of God, first and foremost, that cultural treasure is, is deeply part of who we are as God's children. Right. So um, as a son of God in Christ, um Who is of these different cultural backgrounds, I bring distinct glory and honor to the table. And that informs my theological reflection. Not just but for the whole body of Christ. And one of the things I think that's happening now in the United States is that we're getting a really clear glimpse of verse 27. Again, verse 27 is the verse that says, But nothing that causes sin will, will be brought in, right? And we're coming to a reckoning now in the United States, right? Where we where That sin of the U.S. church, of the Euro-American theological tradition, is coming into full view, and we don't know what to do with it. Mm. And books like Brown Church, or or different other, you know, um, reflections um, from different the vantage point of different cultural groups, we're bringing to light the glory and honor of our theological traditions, right? (laughs) And so I just want to say that also, again, like there is glory and honor to the European American theological tradition. There is glory and honor. And and I appreciate that, but there's also the sin that's not going to make it in, you know? Mm. And so anyways, I think that's, we're in that moment. We're in that moment and we're trying to find a language to describe that.
0: Yeah. In working with what you're talking about in the book, you, you talk about Brown church, I think to get to that, I love the phrase you just used because I think for for some of my listeners who are European, this would be helpful. When you say Euro-American church, what what does that mean? Like, what are some of the hallmarks of that, uh, from your perspective, from the perspective of someone who is coming from a different, a di- from a brown church kind of perspective?
1: Well, I, I think that the glory and honor of that tradition is that, um, someone told me you can have a personal relationship with Jesus, right? And be forgiven, you know, by grace, right? And, and God really cares about you and wants to transform every aspect of your life, right? I think of like Dallas Willard, for example. Man, mm-hmm. I, 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 love, I love all of his writings and I've listened to them. I've, I've spent hundreds of hours, right? Reading and hearing his books. That's glory and honor. But the sin mm-hmm. part is like manifest destiny, where in the mid-19th century, early 20th century, the U.S. many in the U.S. church said, God has given us the manifest destiny to take over all of the land from the East Coast to West Coast, from sea to shining sea, so that we can spread our form of Christianity and our form of democracy. And the end result was genocide, right? I mean, millions of Native Americans dying. The end result was hundreds of thousands tens of thousands of, of, of Mexicans being displaced from their lands and being relegated to second-class citizenship. The sin is the the, the, the Aristotelian theology that crept its way into U.S. Euro-American theology that said, Oh, African-Americans are natural, natural slaves. Hmm. Stuff like that it has nothing to do with Jesus and the Bible, but it, it's that cultural sin. That's what it is. And to be, again, to be clear, we all have it. If it's, the, the the Latino church and all of its diversity, anything, right? I mean, there's the glory and honor and there's the sin, but but again, it's that sin part that has to be reckoned with in, in every every culture that, that seeks to follow Jesus.
0: Mm. Gosh, it's so loaded because, because my mind immediately goes to repentance. And when you think about repentance, it's not just, I'm sorry. It's taking action it's a turn of the mind but it's also a it's a restitution and when you when you think about the heavy weight of what the glory and honor is is a is a blessing but the heavy weight of that sin and how you know how do how do we repent of that that's that's a question i don't think many people are taking seriously and are, are are instead trying to make excuses. I, I I love it. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but I think this is a good part to step in and just talk about the thesis of your book, which I, is just a gift. I mean, it's just treasure because it's watching watching something unfold that for me, I was never either alerted to or exposed to or taught to watch or to, to dig into. I think I, I heard of Justo Gonzalez in seminary. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And that was pretty much it. So uh, you talk about the title of the book is Brown Church. So we've talked about what the Euro-American Church is. What, what does Brown Church mean in the way that you're using that?
1: Sure, so I have several different layers of meaning at least. Um, the first is the Latino, Latin American, social justice, Christian tradition. That's the, first, the simplest layer or level of the meaning and layer of meaning. So beginning in 1511, um, Latino Christians, Latino Christians, Latin American Christians have followed Jesus and challenged all the injustices of the day, whether it's colonialism, whether it's patriarchy, whether it's immigrant exploitation. We have this 500-year history of it that most people have never heard about. began in 1511 um, when a, a Dominican friar by the name of Montesinos, he was in the area that is now the Caribbean, Haiti, the Dominican Republic. So just as as a history refresher, you know, Columbus, when Columbus um, got lost, he got lost in what we call the the Caribbean right now. Right. Um, And that was the starting point of the Spanish European colonial endeavor in the Americas. Right. And, um, So you know, 1492. Fast forward to 1511, and by that time, tens of thousands of of indigenous peoples of those islands had been killed and were being enslaved, and it was just horrible, right? And this this Dominican friar in 1511, he goes and preaches to this group of Spanish elites on the island. So picture like this straw thatched hut. He's speaking to them, and then it's and it's the Sunday before Christmas in 1511. And he goes and he says, listen carefully. The words that you're about to hear will be the strangest you ever heard. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And then he says, he, then he preaches the first social justice sermon in the history of the Americas. Maybe in the history of the world, I don't know. But, but he says, Spaniards, certainly the first racial justice sermon, certainly. He says, listen, you, you Spaniards, God gave you the chance to share the love of Christ with these indigenous peoples. And I'm paraphrasing, but instead you've used this as an opportunity just to enslave and, and, and try to fulfill your greed. And if you don't repent, God's going to send you to hell. (laughs) And then that was the first sermon. And, and then, you know, you can imagine just like today, it raised just this incredible, you know, just rage on the part of the, of the Spanish elites. And he came back the next Sunday and preached the same sermon. Right? And that was the birth of the Brown Church, 1511, six years before Luther nailed his famous theses. Right? And, so the, and we can, the book basically tells the big picture. What's happened from then to now? How have people like, like Cesar Chavez, right? um, Dolores Huerta, Justo Gonzalez, and many, many others across the centuries in the same way followed Jesus but called out that type of all those injustices. Um, So Brown church, one level of meaning is that 500 year history. um, That is just really mostly not, not known unless you're, unless you're like kind of like a niche expert, maybe like at a um, Latino um, theological Institute, you probably never heard of it. Um, Now Brown also the second level of meaning, and this is a little bit more controversial because a lot of Latinos, I'm just going to be honest about my own peeps. We don't like to be called Brown because many of us honestly we consider ourselves white that's 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 the real deal so many people are like i don't like brown but that being said um i'm using brown as a metaphor for um the cultural mixture that we have as latinos as latinas you know latin america we're so beautifully diverse by god's design we have you know, um, some of us are, are, are we're Jewish Latinos, Armenian Latinos, indigenous Latinos of many d- different diverse types, uh, European ancestry, Afro Latinos, and everything mixed in between, right? Asian Latinos, right? Like myself. So that's one meaning of brown. It's like all that diversity that's so beautiful, right? That is who we are. That's one, another meaning of brown. The, the additional meaning is in the United States, The way that we as Latinos and Latinas have been in between the racial discourse and the institutional infrastructure of U.S. society, right, in between black and white. So whether it's the political kind of discussions for presidency or whether it's kind of, you know, the reformation of educational systems or denominations, it's typically a black and white conversation, which is fine. It's fine as long as it includes us, too. (laughs) But we've always been brown kind of in between, right? It's like in that liminal space in between black and white. And so brown is also that metaphor for our in-betweenness. And it's like Revelation 7, right? Like, you know, the beautiful picture of all the diversity, all the tribes and languages and tongues, right? Well, we're one of the tribes, but we haven't gotten our recognition, if you will, right? That, that's also like we're the brown church. So, I mean, I could say more, but that's an initial foray into, into that, that conversation.
0: That's an incredibly rich picture, and that is the book talks about the development of that over over a long, long period of time. But the one thing that's centered to it is this the idea of communal theological reflection uh euro American churches tend to be more individualistic, I think you know with the personal relationship with Jesus extends to you know figuring out your own way, and I think sometimes. My own discipline, spiritual formation is is a little bit leans a little bit too far that way. I mean there's nuance to that. Where else do you really start? You do have to start with an individual and then move towards a healthier community. That's how communities get healthier but the a lot of times the the for whatever reason i I still cannot understand why people disagree with social justice, but a lot of times the the criticism is that there's no grounding. But for you, when you talk about communal theological reflection, it's that that gives birth to this social justice aspect. How, how does that work practically in, in the way that you see it throughout history? That is a
1: great, a great um, reflection that you've offered. Um, so you're referring to what, what Latino theologians call um, teología en conjunto, I I wasn't even going to try that. (laughs) That's a a mouthful, (laughs) right? I I love
0: it. I love it. I wasn't going to try.
1: And it means, yeah, kind of communal theological reflection. Um, To speak about historically, um, Dr. Elizabeth Conde Frazier recently shared with me even the genesis of that phrase. Um, And basically, imagine 30 years ago, 40 years ago. When, I mean, if, if you think this stuff that I'm talking about is new now, can you imagine 30 or 40 years ago, right? And you had uh, Latino, Catholic, and Protestant theologians who, would, who were offering these groundbreaking theological reflections about, you know, scripture and, and, and many different themes. But all they had was each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, they didn't have necessarily even their own denominations. So they said, oh my gosh, we got to do it together. So they, they literally would sit in a room and workshop papers and say, okay, here's my reflection. I don't know, I'm just making this up like on immigration in the Bible. They sit in a room, Catholics, Protestants, Pentecostals, and, and communally reflect. And I think that what made that so meaningful was because they were reflecting upon their similar um, actual experiences, life experiences, existential realities, right, <laughs> that affected all of them through the lens of Scripture. So they, did, they didn't have the luxury of saying, oh, well, we're just going to do our own Pentecostal reflection and forget you Baptists, or we're not going to do our own Presbyterian reflection, forget you Catholics. They like, and I think that that's what makes it unique is like, which is simply to say the body of Christ also. I think <laughs> It's yeah. the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ. And honestly, I know that a lot of the focus of your podcast is the deconstruction, reconstruction piece. And this is really important to that. Oh my gosh. Mm. Because given our American individualism, we think that deconstruction and reconstruction, reconstruction is just a, a me thing. Or we think, oh, I'm just going to read my Bible enough and pray, and then I'm going to come to my own conclusions. And to me, honestly, I'm going to speak very frankly, that's scary to me. Very scary. Because God has given us, again, just the history of the church alone, 2,000 years of, of reflection of of deconstruction and reconstruction. And to speak about the Latino church, we've been deconstructing and reconstructing for 500 years around these same issues. And it's like a treasure that God wants us to partake in so that we, we together we can come to maybe not perfect conclusions, but, but certainly better ones. Um, and, and I'll say one more thing. My wife is also kind of in spiritual formation, spiritual direction. And so she's taught me about St. Ignatius of Loyola. And kind of the process, the way that he frames a, a holistic discernment process. And he talks about, as you'll know, we better than me, kind of consolation and desolation, this, these, these concepts. And he says, like, consolation is when we, f- we feel close to God, right? And we know God's presence. All hell can be burning around us, surrounding us, but we still feel God's presence. At the same time, we can have $20 million in the bank and all the luxuries of the world and feel desolation feel that, that God, we don't feel close to God, right? And many of us now as we're doing Reconstruction, Reconstruction we are in the depths of consolation one day, desolation the other, right? But one of the things that he says is that true well, first of all, he says you shouldn't make decis- big decisions in desolation and that's what's happening a lot, right? We're, we're experiencing desolation and we make these profound theological decisions, Right? Um, and the second thing he says was, it's like true, true discernment with a capital D, we can't take place in any less than six months, right? Right. I mean, and that's an arbitrary number, but basically like, and so anything, what scares me so much is there's so much deconstruction and desolation and people are making major life decisions, um, without, I think enough discernment. I mean, again, my, and four fingers pointed at myself, you know. Um, but anyways, I, I, so that re- deeply burdens me, deeply burdens me.
0: And there's so much in it, especially, and I think what's helpful about what you've written and and even about St. Ignatius is that for us to look back on history, uh, a Western empirical mind looks at history as a fact-finding kind of moment. And part of this is, I think, why we struggle to be formed by the Bible, is we want to be formed by the facts Instead of the wisdom that's laying underneath there, mm-hmm. uh, and so we run into these biblical obstacles. And I don't think my listeners will find any of this strange. But you know, for me, if we're wrestling with whether Jonah was actually swallowed by a large fish, instead of wrestling with why he struggles with the forgiveness, the grace of God. Mm-hmm. When he quotes Psalm 145 and says, "I know you're a God who's slow to anger, quick to mercy. Of course you were going to let my enemies off the hook. Like we're busy fighting about whether there's a fish big enough to do that and not kill him, and we miss this whole God sent this guy to the worst people on the earth mm-hmm. and said, well, I'm, going to, "I'm going to show grace to them." So I, I think you're right. There is that finding our way on our own is frightening. Um, but I also think it's, from what I've seen, it's somewhat naive we will find We'll find a guide, we'll find a guru. We may say we're just going to do it ourselves, but I know for me it's it's been the Richard Rohrers and the Dallas Willards and the you know various people across the spectrum who've helped with that part of the journey. So I feel like maybe we're all doing some kind of communal theological reflection. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may just not be committing to the healthier part of it, which is what you're talking about. When you talk about history. Um when it comes to uh, and this is what I've been on this podcast this year I've been trying to learn as much as I can about this when I look at the history of black and brown Americans one of the primary stories is a story of suffering how how did you learn about that through your journey of writing this book as you've examined the evolution of the brown church throughout you know Hundreds of years. How did that theme of suffering and injustice really animate the work that you were doing?
1: It came through my students, honestly. Like, um, some of my background by my background, like, you know, my dad's family were immigrants from Mexico, but most of my adult or most of my childhood, I remember being very middle class or even upper middle class. You know, so I never experienced that some a lot of that suffering firsthand. I got glimpses, you know, or, you know, I was like pulled over by the cops here or there, or like, you know, I would, I mean, i have, I definitely experienced discrimination, but I didn't think of that much of it until I got to UCLA and I'm teaching classes in Chicano studies. I was trained as a Latin American historian. That's my PhD. Um, and but I wasn't trained like in Chicano studies. And Chicano studies is all about, it's sort of a product. It's one of the beautiful products of the civil rights movement of the, of the 60s, right? And the way like Cesar Chavez and others, you know, forged the civil rights space for the Latino community. And Chicano studies, the, the goal, Chicano studies, studies, the goal is to connect community and research together to improve, right? Um, just the, the, the well-being well-being of, of Latinos, right? And with an understanding of, of that we've come from this history of, of ex- exploitation and, and abuse and so forth, right? So I, I come into, into Chicano studies, you know, with some exposure to it, but I'm trained as a Latin American historian mostly. I have a, of course, a, a tendency towards wanting to pursue justice, and all of a sudden I'm teaching classes in, you know, the history of Latino legal history and classes on, you know, Im, you know, immigration and affirmative action and like police abuse and voting rights. And, and as I'm, I'm, I'm one step ahead of my students in the early 2000s learning this stuff, teaching it, reading these Supreme Court cases and so forth, then I'm having the privilege of learning about the lives of my students when they're working three jobs, you know, commuting back and forth, you know, like three hours a day, like they're just like surviving, and they're incredible. I'm learning about the suffering of their lives, and no health care and you know, experiences with the police, and so on and so forth. I'm doing my quiet time at home reading the Bible, right? And and it's just, it was just this very organic process, and it all came together. But I, that's why I'm so thankful for my students, you know, and thankful for my for Chicano studies actually, you know, because it it, it God used it to form me.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when when you talk about um, the history of the Brown Church and especially even the current, uh, s- some of the current things you talk about, what what are the unique gifts that you see coming out of the Brown Church? These unique gifts of wisdom or pra- even practices that could be part of formation for not, and I'm not talking about appropriation, I'm sure. not saying, hey, let's go over here and find some people's stuff and take it, <laughs> but what can be learned um, I had a professor that called it bringing home the bacon. Like you, you engage with other traditions to learn how to reflect back on your own. What do you see as, as the gifts that are offered by the traditions of the Brown Church? I think one
1: just like critical gift, quite apropos of your whole podcast and this conversation is a model for deconstruction and reconstruction and coming out on, on the other side with wholeness of faith in Christ. Right. Um, and this is where the story of what's called Mission Integral comes in, or Integral, Integral Mission in the book. And um, in the 1960s, 70s, um, Latin American Christians were going through something quite similar to what we're going through now in the United States, right? There were severe injustices happening um, back then. You know, I mean, it was, you had the rise of these horrible dictators that were sadly, many of them, you know, supported by the U.S. government and civil war and, and, you know, thousands of people being killed and poverty and all these horrible things, right? And um, in that context, um, Rene Padilla, Padilla and, and um, Samuel Escobar, who are these amazing, amazing leaders of the time, they, they worked for InterVarsity, but InterVarsity kind of in Latin America, and they were kind of founding in, InterVarsity chapters there. As a side note, my own grandparents helped to found, found InterVarsity in China. 80 years ago but that's a different story but wow but um they and escobar and Badilla and others they were trained in a very american way of doing ministry to be quite honest right very individualistic gospel that had no social ethics or implications um and so they went to all these college campuses in latin america and they said you know Believe in Jesus. Jesus loves you. Believe in Jesus, so you can be forgiven of of your sins and go to heaven when you die. Right? All of those things that I agree with. Right? But it's just—it's not complete. Right? And in response, the, the university students would be like, "What are you talking about? Why is this good news?" Right? It's like my uncle just got killed the other day by by the police. My whole block has nothing to eat. So on and so forth. Right? And it forced them to do the type of reconstruction that we are doing. Your listeners are doing. Right now, like, how do we figure this thing out, right? And still keep Jesus at the center and still love God's word and still, and not give up those, those interpersonal aspects of the gospel, which are also important, right? And they, um, they convened this meeting in Cochabamba, Bolivia, Cochabamba, Bolivia, I forget the exact date. And they, they got together, I don't know, maybe it was 20 or 30 people, theologians, practitioners, pastors, to think through how can we create a movement, a theological movement that can respond to our situation. Right. And they said some pretty strong things, right. In terms of the deconstruction piece, they said some, I mean, they didn't shy away from like they said, for example, you know, and I have some quotes here, actually. They said, you know, according to the American gospel, the racist can continue to be a racist. The exploiter can continue to be an exploiter. They said, according to, again, American Christianity, uh, these are the kind of people who oppose the violence of revolution, but not the violence of war, and condemn Mm -hmm. all the sins that well-behaved middle-class people condemn, but say nothing about exploitation, intrigue, and dirty political maneuvering. They went for it, right? (laughs) And they said, we need to distinguish between the Bible and la ropa anglo-sajon. We need to distinguish between the Bible and just Anglo-Saxon cultural garments, right? And I think what they meant was what we were talking about, Revelation 21, 26, and 27, right? Mm -hmm. What's the glory and honor that we can retain from Anglo-American Christianity? What's the glory and honor of Latin American indigenous Christianity, right, over 500 years but also, what's the sin that's not going to make it into the New Jerusalem, right? What's the sin that's not going to make it in, especially from the Christianity that, that has been exported into Latin America, right? Um, so they did not mince words, as my mom would say, right? They didn't mince words. Um, but at the same time, they didn't get stu- They didn't stop there, which is, I think, what's very hopeful for us. Again, I see so many people just stopping there and just, you know, um, not knowing where to go. And I understand that, but um, but in terms of your original question, they, they took a step further and they framed this theology, biblical theology of mission integral. Hmm. And this is how, how um, Padilla defines it. Mission integral is the mission of the whole church to the whole of humanity in all of its forms, personal, communal, social, economic, ecological, and political. And I think therein lies our salvation as the American church, right? Because if we really think about that and really apply that, we'll, we'll, we'll come out on the other side okay, right? Um, another analogy that they say is that this actually your, your, your crowd um, loves theology, so I can get a little nerdy, right? So I'll read another quote. <laughs> Go
0: for it. So good. <laughs>
1: Um, They say, or or Padilla said, the proclamation of the gospel um, and the demonstration of the gospel that gives itself in service form an indissoluble whole. One without the other is an incomplete, mutilated gospel, and consequently, contrary to the will of God. This would be equivalent to asking about the relative importance of the right wing and the left wing of a plane. Drop the mic. Boom. Right. Let's, let's turn off our Yetis. Right. And just go home. right?
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. That's it. Right. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's just so much there. So as you've mentioned a couple of times, I mean, we're, we're sitting in a moment and and i i'm fond of telling friends of mine like i think solomon or whoever wrote ecclesiastes was right you know there is nothing new under the sun much of what we're seeing is a repetition on a theme uh especially when we look at racial uh, challenges um it's not really a racial challenge the challenge is how people of of different races are being treated in america From your perspective, from the Brown Church perspective, how do you begin to integrate with this, with the 2020 conversation, looking at, you know, police brutality, looking at, uh, because you have the, you have the the combined, the combined, the combined perspective of theologian, historian, and also this, this legal part of you that's there, that's still there. That, I mean, you don't decide to go to law school because you think it would be fun. You actually decide to do that because you have this acumen. How do you and how does the Brown Church begin to speak into uh, the cultural moment that we're in as far as some of the, the racial conflict? I think
1: one thing I'll say is like,
0: because we're in between,
1: we have always had a choice, mm-hmm. um, or some of us, some of us, if, we, if some of us got enough education, enough money, and we fair enough skinned, we could gain honorary whiteness. That has always happened, right? From the time the US stole half of Mexico in 1850 to the present, um, that's been a choice that most Latinos did not have, but some could take advantage of.
0: Hmm.
1: At the same time, most of us, again, have never had that option of, of kind of assimilating into whiteness, right? So as Latinos, we can kind of identify with both, with both, so in the dialogue, again, we find ourselves in between. And I think that um, because we find ourselves in between, and I want to say this uh, um, carefully, like we can, in, in a sort of sense, uh, kind of speak to both sides. That's one thing I think. You know, We, we, we can say affirmatively, without any hesitation, Black Lives Matter because our people are being killed too, right? And have this history. So we we had this interrelated experience, right? With the African-American community, as well as kind of interrelated experience with the white community, like some of us, right? Um, And also in Latin America, like we've never had the the luxury of having a racial binary, right? My friend, Tony Lin, at New York Theological Seminary taught me this. He's like, and he's actually Asian Latino like me which makes the point even more we've never been able to just think in white and black terms right as long as we can remember it's been white black indigenous asian and every mixture in between for 500 years right so i think that we have sort of a legal historical theological imagination that goes beyond kind of the typical conversation that happens in the united states and i think that that's what we can um, that's what we can contribute that's a pretty general theoretical kind of answer but I, i'll you know Take a pause
0: there yeah yeah, so you've you've always the uh, latino latina communities have always been living in that revelation seven kind of space, yeah, where it's it's always been every tribe tongue and so that's not new, whereas i i I find myself telling euro american christians a lot like you realize this is what eternity looks like this is what the kingdom of god looks like in its fullness it's you with some people that you would look at with suspicion in an airport so i think now we should probably get started figuring out how we're going to do that for all of eternity um and it's sort of a rhetorical move to make a point, like if that's important enough to be a part of the unfolding kingdom of God, then it's probably important enough to be a part of our unfolding lives Amen. here and now. But it it takes a lot for, it, it takes more work and it takes things like this, takes conversations like this of listening to someone who is either in the middle space or some of the Black Christians that I've talked to in the in the last year who have just educated me tremendously about this is what it feels like to be me, uh, a follower of Jesus, just like you, but also with all of these restrictions and assumptions and things I have to tell my son, you know when he's driving, how he responds when he gets pulled over and things like that, all those trappings that are there it, how do we? how do we from your perspective and as, as a you know with this history that this rich history that you've given in the book but also with you know being a follower of Jesus in the middle of this racially heavy moment how do we deal with some of those uncertainties some of those unknowns because what i love about history is you're watching people figure it out
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. even in the biblical history like you're watching people figure out so god lives with us now in a tent so what are we supposed to do next? Uh, how how do we f- figure out? How do we begin to live in wisdom in the midst of all of this fr- from from that theological perspective, from that perspective of who God is and what he's and what he's doing now?
1: I think of of like in the Book of Acts, and when when sort of when the, the Grecian Jews and the Hebrew Jews were fighting over which widows got what food, right? I th- and I remember just hearing a sermon on that from my good friend pastor adam edgerly many years ago and it's like there was sort of there was a cultural dispute and then they ended up appointing all these leaders all these the first deacons who as far as we can tell were all themselves greeks greek ethnic greek jews so they went to they allowed the aggrieved to bring their wisdom their experience into coming up with the solution and i think that that's yeah that's what has to happen. Like if we're talking about like the, the church in the United States today, let's say we're talking about the, um, the American Baptist churches that I grew up in. If you want to figure out this whole Latino thing, you have amazing Latino leaders, Latino leaders that have their PhDs that have been doing ministry for 50 years that can show you how to do it. Right. Yeah. And I think that multiply that across well, whether it's, you know, seminaries and it's fuller or Azusa Pacific or anywhere the evangelical covenant denomination, which I love or whatever. It's like, yeah, I think that, that that's, um, and actually that's what Jesus did. I'm thinking about it now. Like when Jesus changed the system, when Jesus wanted to change the system, he started with those who were excluded from the system. Right. He started in Galilee. Right. Yeah. And he was a Galilean even like, and, and you know, this is a cool thing from Latino theology. I think one of the most brilliant contributions is that people like, um, like, uh, let's see, I'm I'm blanking on on names right now, but Latino theologians have picked up on the fact that, oh yeah, Virgilio Elizondo, for example, they pick up on the fact that Jesus was from Galilee and they dig historically, what, what was Galilee like? And Galilee was the hood of its day, right? It was the hood, right? <laughs> Galilee was what was the barrio. Galilee was East L.A. Galilee was South L.A., right? And when God came and took human flesh and wanted to make things new because the, the things were so messed up, he had to start with the perspective of, literally, you know, of Galileans, right? Hmm. And be a Galilean and pick his leaders among Galileans. Jesus didn't, like, he, he, didn't, he wasn't born into, you know, a rich Jerusalem family that had, 10 generations of rabbis, right? Although I'm not putting down those 10, you know, if, if someone has 10 generations of rabbis, that's great too. But on a structural level, right, he had to kind of literally take on the flesh of someone who was from the, the margins of society, right? Who knew the weight of Roman oppression, who knew the weight of oppression of, of even of people of his own ethnic group, right? Um, to think of the solutions, right? And, and the book of Acts is basically like, it's largely like, what did these Galileans do after after they were after they walked with Jesus for three years, and then Jesus died and rose again and gave them the empowering of the Holy Spirit? How did they work this out? Right, and you could say the same thing now. How do we work it out now in the United States? Go to the Galilee, go to Galilee, right? go to Galilee, and you'll find out.
0: Yeah. The conversations, the learning, the edu- being being education, the being educated, the the unlearning. That's a word I've been living with a lot lately. Is the unlearning process? It's it's what Jonah was. Who we mentioned that earlier. That's what Jonah was going through. Uh, it's what I, a lot of us Euro American Christians need to go through, which is listening and listening not to go, oh well, that's not true or whatever, but listening to say if this has happened. Tell me what it would look like. Uh, what would it look like for that for that to be restored or repaired or renewed? How at the at writing a book like this? I mean, you're you're obviously covering a lot, and I'm sure there's a lot you couldn't include. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless you did like a nine volume kind of <laughs> shindig, which maybe I mean in the future, let's talk about that. I think that should happen. Uh, you, you crafted the book the way that you did for a purpose. What is the gift or gifts that you hope would come out of this for someone who, who spends the time and reads it and invests themselves in the book?
1: So I think there's several audiences. Um, the first audience is, audience is that of young Latinos and Latinas. There's millions of my sisters and brothers out there who are looking for a spiritual home, longing for a spiritual home. They're like... Okay, you know, I grew up in this church, but I see all these injustices that are happening, and I can't keep going to the same church, right? I, I don't belong, right? Or or it's really hard to stay at the same church for now. Whether it's whether they go to a multicultural church, or unfortunately, whether even if they go to a Latino church, that that might not uh, prioritize justice. And the first gift I hope by God's grace is that they could say, I do belong. I belong to this 500-year history of the Brown Church, right? And um, that's one of the most meaningful feedback sort of that I've gotten, you know, from people. Like, to, I have a quote here also, um, and I've gotten, praise Jesus, similar feedback, you know, where this one person stated, you know, I cried all night. No podía dejar el libro. I couldn't put the book down. I finally found a home. What's amazing is that this home has been there this whole time. I woke up feeling so proud of who God created me to be in such a time as this. That's the biggest gift that I can ever receive from the Holy Spirit is that. Um, that, that being said, I mean, the additional thing, I hope that, that, that the book will also bring a space of repair between the generations of the Latino church, the young folks who are fleeing and the older generation. I hope that it, it can create a space of 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 repair of healing um, and then thirdly I, I think that I hope that the larger church in the United States, at a structural level denominational level um, seminary level, and everything else you know a parachurch ministry could you know read this book as introduction i'm not making anything for the most part i'm, not, I, I'm this is mostly secondary research actually like my gift is just creating if if i if there is a gift to the book by god's grace. It's just it's, I'm providing a frame that is perhaps accessible to a lot of people and meaningful. Ironically, using the language of Chicano studies <laughs> and critical race theory, I'm, I'm, I've created a frame that can make, that, that could provide an entry point into things that, oh my gosh, my colleagues, amazing colleagues have been like, like you mentioned, Husto Gonzalez and many others have been doing for the last 60 years. I'm not doing anything new other than kind of providing like a guided tour, like saying, hey, okay. And I think that if denominations are willing to, and, and different church stru- structures are, are willing to make that journey, man, I think they could have an extended version of what we're doing right now. for What we've done for 45 minutes, I imagine, imagine that replicated.
0: Who knows what could happen? Yeah. Well, thank you for giving the gift, man. Thanks for the, the time of conversation today. And, and I'm, I'm just learning from you. And I appreciate you being a being a good teacher and being a, a generous teacher for sure. My privilege. No, thank you. It's an honor to be
1: here and, and, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your ministry here.
0: feeling that I came away with after this conversation with Robert was two words, gentle clarity, gentle clarity, and even maybe gentle confrontation. And I hope that you felt that in what he had to say. I hope that you will pursue learning more about some of the things that he talked about and opening your mind and your heart and your eyes to the fact that there is a rich narrative of Jesus that comes from a cultural perspective that's so different from ours, if you're white. That there is a faith tradition that can bring richness and hope, but there's also suffering. There's also challenge. There's also injustice that many of us who are white have just missed. And I really appreciate the way his book addresses that. Robert Chow Romero is an associate professor in the departments of Chicana and Chicano Studies and Asian American Studies at the University of California at Los Angeles. He's the author of uh, the award-winning The Chinese in Mexico, 1882 to 1940, and also Jesus for Revolutionaries, An Introduction to Race, Social Justice, and Christianity, and also a book called Mixed Race Student Politics. His book that we talked about today is called Brown Church, Five Centuries of Latino or Latina Social Justice, Theology and Identity. I mixed that up. Five Centuries of Latina or Latino Social Justice, Theology and Identity. You can find that, a link to that in the show notes. Also, you can find a link to where you can see some of Robert's other work in the show notes. If you're listening on any of the platforms, Spotify, iTunes, or streaming via my website, thank you so much. If you can rate or review the podcast, that would be great. That gives me an understanding of who's listening and uh, give me an, a sense of what you want to hear, what you need to hear, what you like, what you don't like. I'm beginning the planning already for season four. So if there's anything you'd like to see change about the podcast Please let me know. I would love to do that. And so may you know that there is a far bigger story of glory and honor. And it is part of the great patchwork quilt that God is using to redeem all of creation. And we get to be a part of it if we pay attention to the patches around us. Until next time. Be well. Live wisely. Peace, friends.